Well, good morning to you, and it's good again to share with you. It's a privilege to share God's word with you and to worship with you here in Hamilton Baptist. The reading this morning is from John 12 and from verse 12 down to verse 20. And I hope you are not getting too worried about Easter next Sunday and getting your holiday plans in place. COVID has knocked our sense of time around. We've heard Christmas already and now we're into the Palm Sunday story. So we're going to be a bit confused. But uh, it's maybe quite good to do that. This will be possibly the first Palm Sunday you've attended for a long time that wasn't on Palm Sunday. No palms waving. No children being cute, nothing like that. Something more settled in the heart of the story of Jesus Christ and his work and ransom for us. I once uh, was in Tenerife, I used to do some work there in a church and uh, I had Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday one year as when I was over and um, they gave out little palm crosses and these were given out to a very large congregation, I have to say, but this man came back in really angry and upset. We had been in this great and wonderful story of Jesus Christ, his triumphant entry and all that it meant, and he was upset because he hadn't been given a palm cross. I just didn't get that, I have to say. And I it, it feeds into how I've begun to understand this story today because of the title given to me um, from here. But let's read this story with expectation that the very familiar Sunday school-like story might actually have something to say to us profoundly as Christian people or not. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. May God bless his word to our lives today. So this reading takes place and places us inside the Palm Sunday story, or the triumphal entry, as it's often labelled. The title that's been given for today is uh, Faith Expressed, The Crowd. And that lifts the story from the simplistic view of waving 
palm branches and singing hosannas and blessing the one who comes in the name of the Lord and not necessarily really knowing what you're doing. All four Gospels include this memorable story, this story that's significant to the life and work of Jesus Christ. It's a crucial story in his mission, for Jesus has set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem, which, of course, is a euphemism also almost for setting his face towards the cross. And then this story, he is throwing down the gauntlet to the Roman powers, the Jewish religious leaders, and to all Israel, and to every false move that spurious faith can make. We talk faith very loosely. We largely believe in faith. We've made faith God. Have faith in yourself and you become God yourself, the one you believe in. Or as people so blithely say, have faith in faith which must be the most nonsensical statement anyone ever made. So what Jesus is doing here with crowds, different crowds coming, some for the Passover feast, some following him still because Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Others have heard about this and they're coming out to see as well. They want to see Jesus and yeah, I bet they want to lay their eyes on Lazarus as well. What is Jesus up to? The Pharisees are in this crowd because they are highly disturbed about Jesus in their land and in his miraculous signs and in his teaching and in the following that is increasing all the time. They've already plotted to put him to death. And that plot is becoming stronger and more sure and certain that it will be carried out. Crowds are a fascinating subject, aren't they? Because you don't know exactly the whole mix of it. And what Jesus is asking is this. Do you understand? Do you understand why I'm here? Do you understand that I'm the fulfillment of prophecies? Do you understand that I am the King of Israel, the Messiah, the anointed one sent forth from heaven above? Do you know that the way God works is not the way you think he works? Do you know that if you believe in me for the wrong reasons, you might fall away with great ease? And he's asking us through his word this day the same question. I think there are two elements confront us in this story. Crowds and the nature of faith. Crowds are fascinating and varied. Some, as for our late Queen's funeral, gathered with a common aim and they queued patiently and in an orderly fashion, although a couple of uh, folks on television got their fingers collapsed, snapped, because they apparently jumped the queue and there's been great upset. But you can't say that about the crowds recently in Iran 
angry and protesting at a grotesque killing of a woman who didn't accept the accepted fashion. Nor about the angry crowd, a mob that stormed at the USA powers of authority when an aggrieved candidate stirred it up and sat on his hands while refusing to stop what was happening. The trial in The Hague just now uh, refers to the murderous Hutu mobs in Rwanda during that terrible killing period. A few months and three quarters of a million people killed. And yet crowds can gather happily. Nearly 50,000 attended women's football matches a few days ago. Can you believe it? There are now more women going to football than there are than there are men, it would seem, sometimes. And, of course, the Tartan army is renowned for its well-oiled but happy support of its national team, the Yo-Yo national team of Scotland. It's going up at the moment. So a lot of research has gone into the nature of crowds, how they work and how they are organised and why... They move in this direction or that direction and what triggers violence and protest and so on. I had a friend who was in Berlin many years ago and he walked straight into a mob, a huge crowd, and the violence put fear in his heart. They weren't looking for him, but it was like being in front of a tsunami coming right across the street. Jesus was used to crowds. <coughs> Did you know that? But every crowd was different. A mob threatened to throw him down a cliff, though he slipped through the net. Crowds rushed after him, even when he tried to be alone for powerful communion and prayerful time with his father. Crowds gathered to drink in his teaching listening with rapt attention to the golden words of truth that spilled from his lips. It could be a long day sometimes, especially if you'd followed him out into the wilderness and forgotten your water bottle and your packed lunch. It evoked a feeding of the 5,000 on one occasion. His healing powers were famous. It drew crowds wherever he went, needy people all seeking his healing touch. And then there's the crowds he saw sometimes with his godlike eyes, the crowds that were harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. There were believing crowds, there were unbelieving crowds, there were skeptical crowds and crowds infiltrated and manipulated by religious leaders and teachers and rulers and Roman pilots and so on who saw Jesus as a threat. By the time of Palm Sunday, as we call it, these leaders were plotting to have him killed. And yet here's the strange thing. The fervor of the crowd that was for him that day meant they couldn't even act. The crowd that would shout crucify at this point was protective to him. And so Jesus sets up a donkey ride into Jerusalem. 
He's not there for a photo shoot. He's there to make a point, to announce his message, to help people begin to understand what's going on. This is the one who would give life to the dead, you and me, through resurrection, through his own resurrection. But therefore, this is the one who needed to be anointed in advance for his death and his burial that he is now setting his face towards. He taps into the excitement of the crowds who had witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead. And they were keeping on spreading the word of what had happened, a vital element of what evokes real faith. For faith comes through the preaching and the hearing of the word of God. So the crowd swelled with desperate people, desperate to see Jesus and to see Lazarus if they could. Hi, they would say, I got a selfie with Lazarus. Jesus isn't milking the crowd like a celebrity seeking publicity. He has drawn this crowd to himself to begin the process of making much more clear what kind of king he was and to prepare him for that moment when he would be upon a cross with a label, this is the king of the Jews in three languages. The crowd lined the streets. Jesus' enacted parable triggers their memory. They recall great prophetic verses about the expected Messiah. That's in the air anyway because it's Pentecost, the great Festival, remembering how God set them free from Egypt. They expected the Christ, Israel's king. The excitement has been ranked up high. The decibels would burst your ears. And everywhere the crowds are swelling. Jerusalem's quite a small place, really, and when it's busy and packed and there would be roughly a million and a half people in the place from all over uh, coming to worship in the temple with all the great remembrance of how God, Yahweh, took them out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's grip, across the Red or the Reed Sea, as we now think it's called, from all their bondage, towards the promised land. Expectation levels reach the sky. Hosanna, Hosanna. Excitement, you can feel it. The atmosphere's electric. Oh, I'm going to believe, aren't you? C.H. Spurgeon got it spot on care more for a grain of faith than a ton of excitement, he said. Well, faith was expressed, but what was its nature? Hyped up moments of high emotion sway the crowds in one direction, there for Jesus. But what Jesus what did they expect of him? What were they thinking he really was? I think he should have been on a great steed, a, a war horse, 
into Jerusalem because most of their expectations were about getting rid of the Romans, not about being saved from their sins. Hyped up religion is dangerous. I remember an occasion taking a youth fellowship to Butlins in Ayr. That, that was a, a big discipline for me. A, a carrying of my cross, going to Butlins when it was freezing in Ayr for spring harvest. Following a late night youth meeting, the young people were delirious with excitement. They felt the call of God to go to the mission field. Oh, they would have been in Ethiopia tomorrow. In the morning, they were so tired out, of course, exhausted, I had to waken them from, for breakfast. I did go around singing at the doors, Oh, what a beautiful morning! And they hated me for it. They were grumpy. Last night, they were Christians like no one else could be a Christian. This morning, what was left? Post-conference blues. Not one of them followed the call. One girl said to me, I, I feel really guilty. I, I went out to give myself to be a missionary, but I don't want to be a missionary. I hate it if God is calling me to be a missionary. I want to be a pharmacist. Now, there's not a contradiction there. You could be both. But I said to her, has God called you to be a pharmacist? Because that's what mattered. The great crusades of Billy Graham, for example, and in Scotland we were privileged, perhaps in the 50s, to have the most fruitful crusade that he had, post-war coming to a Scotland steeped in scripture. We knew our Bible. You could talk to a drunk man in the street and he'd argue with you on the basis of the Bible, telling you what was wrong. He knew his Bible. And so the seed of a gospel call that hadn't been coming to our nation came and harvested. But do you know that all the missions and crusades everywhere in the world However vast the crowd that goes forward rarely goes above 10% of people who remain and stay the course. And that's not a criticism of Billy Graham, but it's a warning to us. How come? Because crowds are fickle. Expressions of faith and the excitement can fade away like morning stars if you've got the flu. Crowds are manipulatable. Expressions of faith are easily triggered by a group mindset and shaped by leaders. Crowds are mixed, true and false, deep and shallow. Conviction exists side by side. Peer group pressure takes us in directions we might not want to go. Even as we gather, wheat and tares grow together, hard to distinguish. Have you noticed how some of the most um, fervent Christians 
burn out and vanish from the scene? Have you heard a moving testimony and you felt at a baptism, this is the real thing? And a few months later, you hear a bitter story of dreadful falling away from Christ. Remember, it wasn't long before this crowd, not entirely by itself and not necessarily that all were there, and certainly encouraged by many others, were not crying Hosanna, but crying crucify. They even chose Barabbas, an insurrectionist, over Jesus Christ. That change is poignantly expressed in the hymn, My Song is Love Unknown, a beautiful hymn of the life of Jesus. Sometimes they strew his way, and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day, hosannas to their king. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. I'm sure some found faith and expressed true faith in the crowd on Palm Sunday, but for sure not all did. So this faith that was displayed, what was it? What was it placed in? What expectations did it have? Because when we place faith in something or someone, we have expectations. Now, maybe you're back to going on holiday next summer and you've been looking through the glamorous brochures and you get the picture of where you're going to be and it's going to be absolutely wonderful and the accommodation and all the rest. And then you arrive there and it rains. The accommodation's not what was promised. It's up a hill about this gradient and you can't walk very easily. It's actually really poor staff. The food's rotten. You complain about it and nothing much changes. Your faith was all in the promises of a brochure. And there you get disappointed sometimes. Faith is only as good as that in which it is placed. Sometimes people used to say to me, if they were relatively new to the church and didn't know me well enough, I trust you absolutely, pastor. And I'd say, stop there. If you trust me absolutely, you are in for disappointment. Oh, never give me a shot. It won't be too long before you find that even though I appreciate you think I'm trustworthy, that I can let you down, I can disappoint you, you can pour expectations on me that I cannot fulfill. I cannot carry the weight of your life. I cannot carry the burdens of your sin. I cannot solve the problems of your life, etc., etc., etc. The only one who can is a living God and our Savior Jesus Christ who bore the weight of all the world as he hung upon a cross, which Palm Sunday is all about. It's interesting the disciples didn't really have a clue what was going on in Palm Sunday. 
It's only later when Jesus was glorified. He was glorified on the cross as in his resurrection and in his ascension. The Spirit is now sent before this is written and it took all of that before the disciples understood. So what kind of faith did they have? Weird and wonderful is the journey of faith. The Pharisees didn't have any faith at all except that if they kept alive and kept doing this, he'd win the people to himself. And above all, the people had faith stirred by the word of God that they remembered, but they only remembered the good bits in it, which are rightly quoted because that's what Jesus is, but it doesn't tell us that he makes things for peace the way of the cross not by the way of the sword, which is what they imagined. Jesus is bursting the bubble of expectation to direct it to the way in which his kingship would be made known on a cross wearing a crown of thorns. If today had been his final resting place, his place where people come to gaze. It wouldn't be with a magnificent shining crown on the day of his death, but with a crown of thorns. For through that, he bursts every expectation. He bears everything of sin and death and hell and all the world's troubles, and in his sovereignty, in laying down his life, is raised again, that he might wear the crown worthy of him, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He was a great miracle worker, and some people live by that faith, that Jesus will work miracles but he didn't go around healing everybody. And he still doesn't. Because he has a better plan. A better plan greater than the health and wealth gospel that appears, appeals to the poorer people of this world and to the greedy materialists of this world as well. Come to Jesus and you'll get gold teeth in the shape of a cross. Come to Jesus and you'll drive a Cadillac. Come to Jesus and you'll carry a cross. That's what he said. Faith can be readily displayed and not be genuine saving faith. Hear the difference? The world is full of faith and everything except Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. So what is faith? Well, faith is confidence in God, in his Son, Jesus Christ. The response of faith to God's character is revealed in his scripture, enabled by his Spirit. Don't make a Christ of your faith Place faith in Christ. 
John Calvin said, Faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded on the truth of freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our mind and sealed to our heart through the Holy Spirit. I don't know you. But some of you may have come to faith in God looking to have your needs satisfied. And he does satisfy our deepest needs. But he's he's more interested in the deepest eternal needs of the soul than the momentary needs of our life's journey. That's hard for us to wrestle with because we think earth in itself and my life here and now is more important than anything else. But death, the great leveler, reminds us that that moment is more important than anything else. What next? He's met that need. Through the forgiveness of our sins and the giving us new life and the promise of resurrection. Faith must be built on foundations that are strong, true, unbreakable, eternal. Or else your faith is likely to be a poor thing at best. Faith needs to be strong in its understanding, but it must be fixed in the person of Jesus Christ himself. To be Christ-centered is to be God-centered. To be Christ-centered is to be united to him so that all his life and death and his exaltation become our story too. He recapitulated the story of human beings without sin, but carried it to deal with it, so that his story might be a recapitulation of ours, that we can start again, not now in Adam just, but in Jesus Christ. We're really having our own faith checked out today. What is it founded on? Who do we believe Jesus is? There are all sorts of movements that have embraced Jesus Christ and carried his banner and spoken his name that only have him for a little point of life. One of the stories he told was what happens to the good seed of God's word as it's sown in the soil of the human heart. Three out of the seeds go nowhere in the end. Only one does. And it's productive. It fruits. It harvests. It spreads more of the same. I'm not saying you're locked into one or other of these positions. You may be hard and stony ground and you've heard God's gospel for who knows how long and you still can't see it. Well, today that could change. Because Jesus has ridden into our presence today and said, stop looking for 
something different from what I offer. I offer you life through the cross, through my death, and no one else can do that to give you life everlasting. Some may be on stony ground where if you don't get that seed growing in you quickly, the birds of the air, the things of life will just take it away. Come, put the roots down. Some of you have put your roots down and you thought you were getting on fine, but at the same time your roots are also in this world and they grow weeds that choke out the life. How often has the Christian church seen that happen within its own midst, within your own families, time after time? And all of these are impacted by the terrible things that can happen to us in life. How many people say, I thought when I became a Christian, I wouldn't have this happen to me. All my troubles would disappear. My marriage would be healed. My children would grow up well. If we did a collected book of the tragic stories of the life of the people of Hamilton Baptist Church, it'd fill how many books? But many people will have said over the years, that's it. I'm not going on with God. In Yancey's words, I'm disappointed with him. He didn't live up to your expectations. One of the hardest things for most people is to have a little baby that dies. And how often people close their heart to Christ because of that. You can understand it, can't you? Well, only if you don't understand faith or understand God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for his all. I can't answer the dilemmas and the pain and the suffering of these circumstances, but I can call you to an expectation that there is a Christ who is greater than these things and brings a kind of healing and transformation and hope and meaning that nothing else does, not even your rejection of him. There's nothing more miserable to reject God and have nowhere else to go. As we finish, I want to take you to another crowd. It was the day of Pentecost. The Spirit fell. Come with me into this vast multilingual crowd from all over the known world, Jewish people full of expectations, the Bible story reverberating in their brain and in their heart. The Spirit is suddenly poured out upon the apostles, a laser show you've never seen before. What pyrotechnics went on? And then that astonishing experience of an uncouth, broad Galilean dialect spoken by Peter being heard in their own tongue. They were satiated with joy and now puzzled and perplexed. But what this all meant, 
in the light of the fact that Jesus had not all that long ago been crucified and that was still in the air. People who had pinned their hopes on Jesus and wagered their faith on him to knock the Romans off their perch. What brought this crowd to a place where for thousands faith in Christ, true, genuine faith in Christ was expressed? Well, he linked what was happening to the prophecies of Scripture. <coughs> he explained what was happening in the Spirit's coming. He told the story of Jesus and the, their responsibility for his death. He announced his resurrection on the solid basis of Scripture and eyewitness accounts. He showed that a crucified Messiah is not a contradiction in terms, but the way to glory for God raised him from the dead and anointed him as Lord and Christ. What happened? Well, the crowd was big. What we do know is how some reacted. They reacted in an amazing way. They were cut to the heart. They got the truth. They understood this was Messiah, for Jewish people, this was a radical revolution of their mindset and their heart outlook to embrace a crucified Messiah. What can we do, they said. <laughs> Peter basically said nothing except come with empty hands. Believe. Trust. Receive. And embrace the truth that is found in Jesus Christ, the gift of God. The head must believe. The heart must receive. The hokey-cokey act of faith is to put your whole self in to the hands of God, to the promise of God, to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, one last thing. Believe and be baptized. There is something to do, but it's just to receive. Every one of you. A crowd may sway you for a moment, but it cannot believe for you. You must believe yourself.